So if you would, everyone, open your Bibles. We're going to be in Romans 1 today. And we're going to be continuing in our teaching on um, the righteous one. And Rob's just spent the last couple weeks and he's walked us through the first part of um, chapter 1. And, and he's been reminding us of the good news of the gospel. So today, we're going to be starting in verse 18. And we're going to finish out the rest of the chapter, but this part of the chapter deals with the wrath of God. And as I studied um, this passage over the last couple weeks, I, I was reminded of a statement that we say here quite a bit. And the first time I ever heard it was when we did the um, Recovering Redemption series through uh, from Matt Chandler, and he says, he said this, it's really hard to love the good news until you really understand the bad news. And I'm going to tweak that just a little bit for this passage, and I'm going to say this, it's impossible to truly love the gospel unless you understand your need for it. That's what I want to accomplish today. I hope that during our time together that we would be reminded of our need for the gospel. One commentary I read when I was preparing, said he titled the passage, Everyone Needs the Gospel. And I thought, I thought that was so fitting because it actually prepared me to come at the passage expecting to see Christ. Expecting to see the righteous one. And that's good because there are some uncomfortable things in this passage to work through. But they're necessary. We don't want to speed through it because we desperately need the information that Paul's giving here. And if we don't understand this, then we don't understand salvation. Because what we're going to learn is that without Christ, all is hopeless. And without Christ, we will pervert everything that he has made. Without Christ, we will find Death and destruction. And so, again, my hope is that after walking through this passage, we will see our need for Christ, and we will see just how amazing the gospel is, or be reminded of how amazing the gospel is. So, we're going to jump into this passage. If you would, get your Bibles. We're going to be uh, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse For although they knew God, they didn't honor God as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up into the lust of their hearts, to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature 
rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice, full of envy, murder, strife, and deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips and slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Father, we thank you for your word. Just like we sang, Lord, would you prepare our hearts to receive it? Would you help us to see you in this passage, your character, and change us? Help us to see you clearly and be changed because of that. And Lord, please help me to be clear as I teach this passage, Lord. Help me to put you up front. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I read this passage, when I read it, I realized there were three questions I have to answer um, if I'm going to understand it. Those three questions, um, they, they all come out of the very first part of the passage. Really, most of, out, out of verse 18, which says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Those questions are this. What is the wrath of God? Who are the ungodly? And why did God reveal his wrath? We have to understand those things if we're going to grasp what the passage is telling us. So, what is the wrath of God? And this is on the back this is on your notes on the back of the bulletin. If you want to follow along, who are the ungodly and why did God reveal his wrath? <clears throat> So let's start with the wrath of God. One of the best definitions I found for the wrath of God that I could find was this. It was God's holy and loving response towards sin. God's holy and loving response towards sin. Let's sink that let's let that sink in. Because there are a lot of different feelings that pop up when we start discussing the topic of wrath. It's not a popular topic today. And we don't hear it talked about a lot. Ian taught in Genesis uh, a couple weeks ago. And he was focusing on his teaching on the fact that God is faithful, God is just, and God is merciful. And during his time, he, he was bringing up the fact that many people struggle to think of God in any other way except for a God of wrath. Or a God who is harsh. Or a God who's waiting to strike down a hammer on them every time they do something wrong. And this is true. For a lot of us, this is a true statement, especially if you grew up in a church that was preaching fire and brimstone all the time, or maybe you're just naturally bent with a guilty conscience and you walk around thinking God's just wanting to crush you for your sin. It's true. For a lot of us, and it was 
really, you know, many years ago, that was pushed really heavy. It was just focus on the wrath of God and people will turn. But today, I think we're facing a different but a similar problem. And I think the pendulum has swung completely in the opposite direction. I read an article last week, and it's opened up. It started by saying, the wrath of God has fallen on hard times. The wrath of God has fallen on hard times. Why? Because it makes people uncomfortable to talk about. And churches and Christians just in general have decided, we're not going to talk about God's wrath because it makes people uncomfortable. And we don't want anybody to be turned away. And so as a result of not talking about God's wrath, then we don't mention God, we don't mention sin. We don't mention the fact that God hates sin. So the idea is we'll focus on God's love and then nobody has to be uncomfortable because what? God is love and that's all we need to know, right? Or God loves everyone just the way they are, right? Well, no, not really. Just because it's uncomfortable we decide we're not going to look into it, we're not going to talk about it, and then we start to make some assumptions about what God's wrath is. So we might say God only displayed His wrath in the Old Testament, and the New Testament is completely about grace. That might be something that even some of us in here are thinking. Well, isn't the Old Testament where God was wrathful and He never displays wrath in the New Testament? Or wrath sounds a little irrational for God. Or it's a little too angry for God. I don't think God could be love and wrath at the same time. These are maybe some assumptions that we make. But they're not true. See, the interesting part about God is that He is both love and He's wrath. In fact, He is perfectly love. And He is perfectly wrath. And if we say that God is love, and we only focus on His love, and we never focus on His wrath, we have a complete misunderstanding of who God is. And likewise, if we say God is all wrath, and we never mention God's love, we have a complete misunderstanding of God's character. And both of these are ditches that we need to stay out of, desperately need to stay out of. In the book, Systematic Theology, um, I was reading in it, and is a small section in there um, that covers God's wrath. And I don't know if you've ever seen the book Systematic Theology, but it's really thick. And the fact that there's anything small in there is amazing. But I did. I found a small section on God's wrath, and I thought it would be uh, really good for us to process it together and helpful for us as we try to think about how can God be love, loving and, and also display His wrath at the same time. So, Everly, will you put that up? There we go. I'm going to read it if you guys want to follow along. It may surprise us to find out how frequently the Bible talks about the wrath of God. Yet, if God loves all that is right and good and all that conforms to His moral character, then it shouldn't be surprising that He would hate everything opposed to His moral character. God's wrath may be defined as follows. God's wrath means that He hates all sin. So he brings up a couple good points. First, how often does God's, does the Bible talk about God's wrath? Well, we see descriptions of God's wrath several times in the Bible. Actually, it's throughout the entire Bible. And, and I just found a few passages that I thought we could read together 
um, just, to, just to show us a little bit. And both of these, these come from the Old Testament and New Testament. Psalm 21.9 You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath and fire will consume them. Nahum 1.6 Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. In Romans 5.9 since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. It's throughout the entire Bible. And we're going to see this as we continue throughout this teaching. And the second thing that he brings up is something that many of us struggle with, and I mentioned this a little bit, is the idea that God can be love and also display wrath. It's a real tension for a for. For several people. And the struggle here is this. How is it possible that these two things exist together? And mainly that's because we, we don't look into it enough. And we start to associate God's wrath with man's wrath. And we start to mix and we get confused about it. Because man's wrath is irrational. Man's wrath is random. And it's inconsistent. But not so with God. That's not how God's wrath is. So let's consider another passage out of systematic theology. Will you hit that, Ev? Thank you. As with other attributes of God, this is an attribute for which we should thank and praise God. It may not immediately appear to us how this can be done, since wrath seems to be such a negative concept. And viewed alone, it would only arouse fear, yet it's helpful for us to ask, what would God be like if he did not hate sin? He would then be a God who either delighted in sin or at least was not troubled by it. Such a God would not be worthy of our worship. For sin is hateful and it's worthy of being hated. Sin ought not to be. It is in fact a virtue to hate evil and sin. And we rightly imitate this attribute of God when we feel hatred against great evil, injustice, and sin. There's some really... Really good statements in here that should cause us to ask a, a few questions or just to consider a few things. What would God be like if he didn't hate sin? Or better yet, what would God be like if he delighted in it? That is a scary thought. That is a really scary thought. And I am thankful that that's not true. Psalm 5.1 says, For you are a God... You are not, I'm sorry, you are not a God who delights in wickedness, and evil may not dwell with you. So, like we just read in systematic theology, we can see that God's wrath is actually something we should be thanking Him for. Something that we should be praising Him for, not skipping over. But we don't find ourselves doing that very often. Why? Well, we do it. We can't say we don't do it because we, we fully expect God to hate sin that's committed against us or against our loved ones. Or if there was some, some major injustice or, or evil thing that happened to one of our children, we would want God to hate that. Why? Because at that point, we would all agree that sin is hateful. And in sin, great evil is done. 
And so then what happens when we start to process this is we change the question flips. It goes, it goes from how could a loving God display wrath? And it flips and it goes to this. How could a loving God not display wrath? Or how could a loving God not hate sin? That's how the question flips. That's how the two go together. God's wrath is poured out in love and it's loving for God to hate sin. Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God's wrath is his holy and his loving response towards sin. I was listening to this uh, sermon from Vody Bauckham. I like me some Vody Bauckham. He's really good. And um, he made a great point that will be really helpful to us as we attempt to understand God's wrath a little bit better and, and our need for the good news. He said, suppose you're in a conversation, somebody tells you, yeah, I'm saved. You say, really? What do you save from? And they say, well... I'm saved from going to hell when I die. Really? Okay, so hell. What is that? What is hell? Well, that's, that's a bad place that nobody wants to go when they die. Okay. Well, where did hell come from? Um, from God, the creator of all things? Okay. Well, what's that for? That place that nobody wants to go? What's that place for? Well... Actually, that's um, for God to pour out his wrath on the unrighteous. Okay, so then let's go back to the first question. What are you saved from? Um, God? Bingo. You are saved from God to God. We are saved. God has saved us from his wrath. God is so holy... And so loving that he must respond to sin, and he has. We can't even be in the presence of God because of our sin. Can you imagine this? Standing before a holy God, bearing the weight of your own sin? That is a healthy fear right there. But God does this. He reveals our sin to us so that we can understand the power of and our deep need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are some really good truths in here, guys, that we need to grasp. And as we move forward, I want us to understand this. God is perfectly love, and God is perfectly wrath. He is not like man. And God is slow to wrath. As we read this passage, at first it could appear that um, God's displaying his wrath differently throughout the Bible. Because when, we, when Ian taught, we're, we're learning about Sodom and Gomorrah. And he destroys an entire city because of their sin. And then we get to this passage, and this seems a little bit different. This seems sort of more like God's abandoning people. And he's giving them over. We see it three times in this passage where God says he gave the ungodly up to something. In verse 24 it says, Therefore God gave them up into the lust of their hearts. Verse 26, 
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So we have this. God gave them up, God gave them up, and God gave them up. And C.S. Lewis says this in The Great Divorce. He says, The mercy of God is when we say to God, Thy will be done. The wrath of God is when He says to us, No, Thy will be done. This is God's wrath. He takes His hand off of a people. He gives them what they want. But why? Why doesn't He just destroy, destroy, destroy? Because God is slow to anger. And God's wrath is increasing as sin is increasing. It's progressive. He didn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah right away, as the part we were reading, but he said this, if there were but ten righteous, I won't destroy the city. And so we see here that God was also giving them over, they're not turning. He's giving them over, and they're not turning. So God gives them over. And eventually, we see there, he destroyed the city. But God is slow to wrath. Also, God's wrath is just. What what does that mean? That God's wrath is just, or that he is just in his wrath? It means that he is right in it. He's right in his wrath. That man is, in fact, guilty of sin, and we do deserve God's wrath. That's what it means. And that God is so holy that he must hate and punish all that is opposed to his moral character. That's what we just read a little while ago on the screen. So holy that he must punish all that is opposed to his moral character. And when we think about that, when we think about the fact that God is just in his wrath, and then we have to start thinking about who deserves God's wrath, and that's when we start to answer the second question, and that's who who are the ungodly? Well, this passage doesn't hide that from us. If we follow just this passage, we get a really clear understanding of who the ungodly are tells us it's those who suppress the truth. It's those who ignore what's plain. They are futile in their thinking. Their hearts are darkened. They know God, but they don't honor Him or give thanks to Him. They have exchanged the glory of God for idols. They are those who follow the lust of their hearts, the sexual and moral, those who dishonor their bodies. They trade truth for a lie. They follow dishonorable passions. They practice homosexuality. And they do what ought not to be done. He's not done. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. This is an extensive list that shows us who the people are that displease God. And I'm sure that most of us are really comfortable with most of this list. The sexual immoral, the murderer, the haters of God. I'm sure we're really comfortable with that. But I think Paul wants us to look at this in such a way that we see just how terrible sin is. But he wants to stir us up a little bit here 
so that we can imitate God in our hatred of it. But he also wants us to see where sin starts and what it leads to. And it starts when we suppress the truth. Psalm 14.1 says this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. See, God has revealed himself plainly. He has shown himself to them, clearly perceived. And man can either choose to acknowledge God as God, or man can suppress that truth, and he will allow us to follow our desires. And how does that following our desires play out? Well, it leads, it actually leads to the exact opposite of what we were created for or designed for. It does that in many ways, but this passage deals with some that are actually very common in our culture right now, and we can, we can really start to understand it. See, through God we have life. God is the creator of all, and through him there is life. Think about this. And we've talked about this a lot in our church, about what we were created to do and what God has called us to. And it's this different way of thinking. It's multi-generational thinking. And he's called us to be fruitful and multiply. He's called us to invest in our children, to teach our children his ways. Why? So that they'll teach their children and their children will teach their children. This is one way that the gospel goes forward. This is how we're living, thinking and knowing that this is so much bigger than us. But what happens when we suppress that? What happens when God gives us over to the desires of our flesh. What, what happens then? Well, when we look at truth suppressors in this passage, we realize that they're no, no, no longer capable of living like this. See, choosing sin is choosing death. See, let's look at our culture. Let's look at the sexual and moral. They want what God has designed, but they don't want children. Insert abortion. It's death. Insert pornography. God gives them over to dishonorable passions. Insert homosexuality. Unable to procreate. It's not God's design, and it doesn't work. They will die in their generation. Insert transgender. It's really heavily pushed right now. Performing life-altering destructive surgeries on themselves. Taking drugs to alter their bodies. And actually identifying their entire being as that. And the consequences are that they will never ever be able to have children. They can't think multi-generationally. When we get caught up in sin, we can't think more than ourselves. And so we see this happening and the consequences... We see the consequences happening and what we know God wants to, He wants us to hate sin. But He also wants us to see that without Christ, we're all capable of this. See, we're comfortable, I said we're comfortable with most of this list, 
But when we get the other sins on the list, we start to see a different picture. What about coveting and gossiping and disobedient to parents? Where does that happen? Well, think about just think about gossiping. You're gossiping all the time. You're tearing people down in secret. Now you got to be fake in front of people, and you're constantly wondering, do they know what I said? And you're and you're you're consumed with it, and that's that's death. What about coveting? I was thinking about this. Here, you're not content with what God has given you and blessed you with, and you spend all of your energy and time wishing you had the gifts of someone else, or you had their house, or their car, or you, you looked like they did. That's death. And this, this, what, we, what we realize by reading this is this, that none of us are exempt from the list. This is a list that shows us that everybody has sinned. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And also, 1 Corinthians 6.11, right after Paul's listed some, some very sins that are very much like this, and he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So it's this, Either we are the ungodly, or we were at one point in our lives. I came across this while I was studying. And if we look at this passage backwards, it helps us to understand the big picture of Romans 1. See, in verse 18, we see that God reveals His glory in creation, and that it's plain to see. And then we see that mankind suppresses it. So we're going backwards. Next, God reveals his wrath toward mankind because he suppressed the truth. Next, we see God reveals his righteousness by making a way for those who deserve his wrath through the gospel of Jesus Christ to receive his grace. This is what we've been learning the last couple weeks. So we see man suppresses truth, God reveals his wrath, and then God reveals his mercy on those who will receive his grace. This is the gospel. This is the gospel message. Man suppresses truth, God reveals wrath, and then God reveals his mercy on those who will receive his grace. This is God's holy and loving response to sin. And so we just answered the question. The last question is, why did God reveal His wrath? It's because He must. Because what sin is, is rejection of God Himself. And we think, we think we can play around with sin. We think we can control it. But it's a lie. Let's not exchange the truth for a lie. When we feed sin, it is never, ever, ever satisfied. It destroys and it destroys and is never satisfied. It destroys marriages, relationships. It promises us life and happiness, riches, popularity, comfort, satisfaction, and it delivers us nothing but but destruction. It can never be satisfied. But here, there is something that can be satisfied. This is the good news. The last thing we're going to learn about God's wrath is this, that it is satisfied 
in Jesus Christ. Amen? Here's where the good news is revealed. That in saving us from His own wrath, God has done what He could not do, and He has done what we did not deserve. The Bible tells us that God's wrath was poured out on the cross on Jesus Christ, His only Son. And He tells us that Jesus became the propitiation for our sins, which means this, He paid our debt because we couldn't pay it. And this this outpouring of God's wrath is the greatest act of love that there has ever, ever been. Jesus is the only hope for the ungodly. He bore our sins and through Him, the wrath of God is satisfied. That's the truth. This is the truth, guys. Let's not suppress it, but let's believe this. Jesus Christ is our Savior. And He alone is able to save us from our sins. And He alone is able to save us from the wrath of God. We must understand the wrath of God. Why? So that we can truly love the good news, the gospel. And we need to understand it because it shows us what we've been saved from. And that's God's wrath. So what's the application for that? Well, the application is this. If you belong to the Lord and you're saved, remember what you've been saved from. We praise Him that He's slow to wrath and that He has revealed His grace and had mercy on you. Take time to focus on what the good news really means for you. Dads, lead your families in this. If the Lord reveals your sin to you, turn quick. Don't wait. If the Lord is revealing your sin to you, turn. We see what happens if we don't. But if you don't know the Lord, if you're not saved, turn. Turn to the Lord. Repent of your sins. Put your hope in Christ, the only one who is, can pay your debt for you. And if you have questions about that, how to do that, there are several people here who would love to help you with that. You could talk to Rob or Ian, Bob, myself. If you still live at home, ask your dad about it. Ask your parents. This is the good news, guys. Spending time studying this has been so impactful for me just over the past couple weeks of just appreciating what God has done. What I deserve, but what He's done. And that He's opened my eyes to see His truth. And I now, more than ever, don't want to suppress it. I don't want to suppress the truth. So that's my prayer for you guys too, is that you will... Refuse to suppress the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you just for your word, for the fact that you hate sin. The scary part, Lord, is that we are sinful, but the good news is that you made a way for us. We thank you for that. Lord, 
please help this to stick in our hearts that we need you. That you, Lord, are saving us from your wrath. And we want to receive that. Help us to really appreciate your holy and loving response to sin, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to close with um, something that Nick and Jordan shared with us, um, shared with Rob, and he passed it on to me. And they wrote it out, but they, they got it from a sermon they listened to from Joe Rigney. And earlier we spent some time reading the passage backwards so that it would help us really see the gospel message in Romans. But now we're going to read it sort of flipped inside out or flipped on its head here. It's going to show us, when we read it this way, when we flip this passage inside out, it's going to show us what a community or a people would look like that God would be pleased with in the present time. Or, as, and Nick said this when I was talking to him on the phone about it, he said, or, or like a glimpse of what heaven could look like for us to get excited about. So here it goes. For the pleasure of God is revealed from heaven upon all godliness and righteousness of men, who by their righteousness celebrate the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Because they know God, they honor Him as God and give thanks to Him, and they have become fruitful in their thinking, and their humble hearts are enlightened. They have become fools for Christ, and therefore have become wise, and they have received and embraced the glory of the immortal God, and seen His glory in mortal man, in birds, in animals, in the creeping things." Therefore, God restored them in the desires of their hearts for purity, for the honoring of their bodies among themselves, because they gladly received the truth about God instead of lies, and they worshiped and served the Creator who was blessed forever, rather than the creature. Amen. And for this reason, God renews their desires and their delights and their passions. For the women glory in the masculinity of their husbands, and the men likewise revel in the femininity of their wives. They are consumed with passion for them. Men honoring the marriage bed and receiving in themselves due reward for their obedience. And since they saw fit to acknowledge God, God has reoriented their renewed minds to do what ought to be done. They're filled with all manner of righteousness and goodness, and contentment, and benevolence. They're full of gratitude for other people's gifts, brotherly love, peace, truth-telling, and magnanimity. They are edifiers, encouragers, lovers of God, courteous, meek, humble, creative in their goodness, obedient to their parents, wise, faithful, compassionate, and merciful. Because they know God's decree that those who practice such things will receive eternal life. They not only do them, 
but they give approval to those that practice them. Isn't that exciting? Church, this is powerful. Very powerful. And this is what we want to be about. This is what we want to be pursuing. And it's only possible through Christ. So we should surrender ourselves wholeheartedly to Him. Looking for this type of community.